This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Erin Welsh, and this is This Podcast Will Kill You. Welcome back. You are listening to another bonus episode, our second, in our mini-series of bonus content exploring in more depth the topics we covered the previous week. As we always say on the podcast, A, we're not experts, and B, we can't cover absolutely everything about a disease or a topic in our regular episodes. And those two things probably aren't going to change. But we can talk to actual experts in the subject we covered the previous week and get to explore some aspects of that topic in more detail than we did in our regular season episode. In our first bonus episode, I followed up our Hepatitis B episode with a conversation with Dr. Sherry Cohen about the stigma and discrimination that people living with Hepatitis B often face and how it impacts their lives. This week, I'm very excited to chat with Dr. Wilfried Matombo-Kolonji and Dr. Natalie Strobor-Gaft from the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative about human African trypanosomiasis. In particular, I wanted to learn more about the development of fexinidazole, a new drug to treat this disease, one that is much safer and easier to use than those that have been historically available. How was this drug discovered? What are some of the challenges in making sure people who need it have access to it? And what impact has it had on control efforts? These are just some of the questions I want to explore in this bonus episode. If you haven't listened to our Human African Trypanosomiasis episode yet, you may want to do so before you listen to this bonus episode, because there's just so much to that story, and it'll probably help give a bit of context for this interview. 
But either way, I'll give a quick overview before we begin. Human African trypanosomiasis, also known as HAT, H-A-T, or sleeping sickness, is a neglected tropical disease caused by two subspecies of trypanosome parasites, one of which, Trypanosoma brucei gambiense, is much more common than the other, Trypanosoma brucei rhodesiense. These parasites, which are transmitted through the bite of a tsetse fly, have been infecting humans for thousands of years and cause a disease that is considered fatal without treatment. Over the past 50 years or so, there have been substantial global and national efforts to reduce the prevalence of human African trypanosomiasis, and we've made a great deal of progress towards elimination. For instance, from 2009 to 2020, the number of recorded cases dropped from just under 10,000 to 663, which is absolutely amazing. But still, these parasites persist in 36 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, with some countries carrying a disproportionate burden of disease, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, where 70% of cases reported over the past 10 years have occurred. Control and elimination efforts for human African trypanosomiasis face many different challenges. For instance, these vector-borne parasites have a super complex ecology, diagnosis of the disease can be quite tricky, and there are many logistical difficulties in providing care to those who need it. Funding for research or drug discovery is always a challenge, and for decades, the only available treatments were either arsenic-based with toxic side effects, these drugs are called arsabol or malarsoprol, or extremely complicated to administer. These last points have changed in the past few years with the discovery and approval of fexinidazole, which is an oral treatment effective for both the first and second stages of Gambiense human African trypanosomiasis. This drug was developed through a collaboration between the French healthcare company Sanofi and the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative, and I am super thrilled that I get to speak with not one, but two amazing scientists at DNDI about this exciting new development and what it means for the global elimination of human African trypanosomiasis. Dr. Matombo Kolonji and Dr. Strubor Gaft have both been involved in many different aspects of human African trypanosomiasis control efforts, from regional fieldwork to clinical trials, and from drug research and development to forming industrial partnerships to bring these drugs from the lab to where they are most needed. And I will let them tell you a bit more about themselves and jump into the interview right after we take this short break. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. 
June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. I'm Wilfried Mutomogalungi. I'm a medical doctor. I'm based in DRC, in Democratic Republic of Congo in Kinshasa. And uh, I'm working for DNDI. Currently, I'm coordinating our local R&D team. And uh, we are working uh, currently on three diseases, human African transomiasis, venereal disease, and, uh, uh, and COVID. So I'm coordinating all our R&D projects. My name is Nathalie Struburgaft. I'm a medical doctor by training. I've been with DNDI since 2009, and uh, I've been uh, leading the NTD R&D activities and started the uh, the Fexinidazole program uh, in 2009 until it came to access to patients in 2018. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat about DNDI and fexinidazole. So I wonder if you could start off by telling me how did you both get involved with DNDI? What brought you to this type of work? My first time to hear from DNDI was in 2006. I was working as a doctor in a remote village, so I hear that DNDI was preparing a project of clinical trial on heart, human African trypanosomiasis. So I was interested because I was uh, treating those patients and uh, so I was aware of uh, issue we had with uh, this uh, disease. And then I applied and uh, I was selected to be a, a local PI, principal investigator for one of clinical site study. So it's since 2006. That was my first contact. And then after I continued, I, I was an uh, investigator in another clinical trial uh, that was called Next Field. And then after, I, from 2012, I started working as a coordinating investigator uh, of affecting the whole project. And since 2016, I'm full staff of TNDL. As for me, it's a bit different. Um, I've been working before in the pharmaceutical industry and in some biotechs. And in fact, in 2003, when DNDI was launched, I was informed via friends. And I kept watching the DNDI website for interest because I've always been interested in doing something that adds value to, you know, public health. And... um, once I saw a position that was open for a clinical development director and I called them and I said, this is me, this is me. And they were at the end of the process. So they accepted to receive my CV. I went through interviews and I got the position and that's how I came with DNDI and I'm still there. Wonderful. 
So today, we'll mostly be chatting about human African trypanosomiasis, but DNDI is involved in control efforts for many other neglected diseases. So can you talk briefly about the general missions of DNDI and what type of work the initiative does? So, you know, in fact, yes, DNDI was founded in 2003, uh, after MSF Doctors Without Borders received their Peace Nobel Prize. And some people at MSF, in fact, doctors who were working in the field, were facing terrible dilemma where they couldn't treat patients who they were trying to take care of because they didn't have the proper tools, the proper treatments. And so they started looking a little bit more and it was very clear that there were a range of patients or diseases that were totally neglected by the efforts of the industry because they were targeting diseases and all populations that had no economic power and for which there would never be what was expected to be needed, i.e. a return of investment. So they developed the model, and at that time there were a few others that started developing what was called uh, product development partnerships, looking at ways of developing treatment options that would be responding to the needs of those that are neglected by this um, industry. And that's how DNDI decided to focus initially on developing a combination of oral treatment for malaria, fixed dose combinations. That was aligned with what the WHO was asking for at that time, but also focus on some specific diseases where there was both a need, uh, some partners, and a hope for short, medium, and long-term response. And that's how a few diseases were selected from the list of neglected tropical diseases, which included mostly kinetoplasty-related diseases, so parasitic diseases, including sleeping sickness, chagas, and uh, leishmaniasis. And then we expanded every three, four years, we had a revision of the strategic plan and based on needs and opportunities, we expanded to oncosarcasis, to pediatric HIV, which might come as a surprise, but very neglected in sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, also hepatitis C, and then mycetoma, also extremely neglected. And then in 2020, we started, as uh, Wilfried mentioned, to engage into COVID response, but COVID response for low and middle income countries. The global efforts towards elimination of human African trypanosomiasis, they've been amazingly successful over the past 10 years. For instance, I saw that only 663 cases were reported in 2020, which is a drop of over 300 from the year before. That's an incredible drop in cases, and it shows that real progress is being made. What do you think are the biggest factors contributing to this decline in human African trypanosomiasis cases? First, it was uh, the diagnostic. That was very, very difficult. And the second and very big challenge was the treatment, because uh, the treatment we used to use was uh, uh, arsobal uh, with arsenic. And that treatment was uh, toxic and uh, less effective was losing its effectiveness. And I think the great moment was when uh, DNDA was involved with all his partners and when we 
change the treatment. The first great step was to change, to switch from the arsobar to next, uh, the combination of nifurtimox and eflornitin. This was the first great step we did. By this changing of treatment, we had a very effective drug and uh, less toxic. And so we, we, we have very, very few relapse and even people was very comfortable to receive this treatment. This was, uh, I think, for me, the very critical moment. And uh, with our involvement of uh, DND and this partner, we are still working on uh, the best way to ease the treatment. And now we are on oral treatment. So all this is was very important and very critical step uh, uh, toward the elimination. Yeah, so maybe I think... Uh we should also recognize the efforts from the, I mean, this is what Wilfried mentioned, but under the umbrella of national sleeping sickness control programs and, uh, and collaboration with many partners, which I think under, you know, the, also the leadership of the WHO, all of this, there was, there was a momentum and a push to consolidate, to have um, joint efforts on diagnostic and treatment, a lot of training activities performed via the national programs. And since Wilfried was also part of the national programs, maybe that's why he's being modest. But I, I think we should recognize that the organization at the country level was, was also absolutely crucial in making this a reality. So you have both been working in this field for a number of years and have had this opportunity to witness this drop in cases firsthand. So how do you feel that this field has changed since you first became involved? I did my, my medical training uh, in Kasai province. So uh, this was uh, one of endemic area of uh, sleeping sickness. So uh, even during my training, I was seeing how those patients were uh, treated with uh, melasoprol. And when I became a medical doctor, I was in charge of managing those patients in my small village where I was working. And, you know, I was receiving those patients, and the only drug we had at that time was melasoprol. This was a terrible drug. I even lose, lost two of my patients. It was a sad, very bad experience. You know, when we were treating patients with alsobar, it was stressful not only for health worker, but you know, even for passion, family, so, but since we have those new drugs, things change, you know, we have uh, even health worker are more comfortable, more confident, this is a good change. And, and I think the key point is also that people are less, less afraid of going for treatment but maybe also with time, they will also be less stigmatized because, you know, less mystery is surrounding this disease. They can, with, with vaccinidazole, patients can be treated in the village. There's nothing magic about, you know, the treatment patients come. And some of our colleagues used to say the success will be one day when you consider sleeping sickness as any other infection. It has been, you know, um, impacted by, by a lot of uh, stigma that uh, this stigma, I think, may decrease with, with getting a treatment that looks like any other treatments. It's tablets. There's, there's nothing, no specific requirements regarding, you know, its use, protection of activities you shouldn't be doing when you take the drug and a lot of things which make it really more normal.
And that's really important because what we need is patients to be treated. What we have observed is that patients have come, sometimes come very late for treatment because treatment before meant going to hospital, which meant not being able to work, which meant maybe having an economic impact on the family, which meant also that the family had to accompany patients at, at the hospital, pay for fees. I mean, a lot of things which, which are impacting the quality of life and the acceptability of treatment. So it's a huge change. One of the things that I wanted to ask about was the COVID-19 pandemic. How has this had an impact on control efforts? Do you think that we'll see another decline in reported cases of human African trypanosomiasis from 2021, or has the pandemic impacted control efforts? For sure, yes. The pandemic has uh, an impact on control uh, efforts. You know, uh, <clears throat> most of national program works with uh, what we call a mobile team. And those mobile team uh, work 12 months. Every 12 months, they spend uh, more than 20 days or more than 15 days uh, going from a village to another doing the screening of uh, population. So uh, it's not easy for them to, to go from a village to another village due to COVID restrictions. And um, since we, we have this COVID problem, you know, they are, they are not able to have uh, 12 months of work. This is another problem. And you know, we work with uh, many partners, many founding partners with COVID, their impact too. So uh, the national program, you know, receive uh, not the entire money for the activities. So this is a second impact. And another impact, you know, if I go, for instance, in the field of uh, another neglected disease like filarial disease, they do what we call mass drug administration. They can do it. You know, last week I was visiting some remote areas and there the mass drug administration was not done due to this COVID issue, due to this uh, restriction of movement and uh, due to the decrease of uh, finance. So this COVID will have a great impact and uh, we must be aware of this. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the stigma surrounding human African trypanosomiasis. Yes, as you know, this uh, it's a chronic disease. The first step is what we call uh, a monolymphatic step. The second stage it's neurological stage, and at that stage, patient you know can become like a foolish, you know, more sleepy, and so on with uh, trouble of behavior, and so on, and. For those who suffer from sleeping sickness, this was a very great stigma. That was one of the factors that could um, avoid some people to come to receive the treatment. But now, uh, sleeping sickness are more and more accepted and are being humanized, you know. Now things are changing. In our episode on human African trypanosomiasis, we touched briefly on fexinidazole, which is this oral medication recently developed to treat this disease. Can you tell us a bit more about this drug, starting with how exactly it works? We haven't fully elucidated the mechanism of action of fexinidazole, but we know it interacts with the enzyme material of the parasite that is responsible for the disease. So it is, in essence, it kills it. How effective is it for Gambiense? 
So it's it's really effective. So we did a we did a study, um, a very robust study in comparison with the uh, NECT, which is the standard of care mentioned earlier by Wilfried, and we showed that it was non-inferior to it, which was the statistical hypothesis, within a limit of thirteen percent, which means that uh, in essence it is almost as equivalent as NECT with slightly lower efficacy, but within a range that is considered as really what the physicians wanted and what the regulators accept. So it's very important because it means that with an oral treatment, you can replace an injectable treatment and something else, a combination of an injectable and an oral treatment. But I think something we haven't yet mentioned is that to administer the standard of care, which is NECT, you need to have patients being hospitalized. But before that, they need to go through a lumbar puncture to verify if they are eligible to this complex but very effective treatment, combining an infusion and an oral treatment, or if they can stay with an intramuscular treatment, which is uh, simpler to use. But still, to get this um, standard of care, they need this lumbar puncture. The lumbar punctures are painful, some of us who have had lumbar punctures in the past, we have access to anesthesia, but that's not the case when you do lumbar puncture to test patients for treatment allocation. You have headaches post-lumbar puncture, and that's also one of the factors that made sometimes patients want to avoid being tested just for the sake of not having to go through this lumbar puncture. Now, with fexinidazole, you don't systematically need a lumbar puncture. You may need it if patients are experiencing severe neurological symptoms where maybe they would benefit more from this standard of care treatment. But otherwise, once a patient has been tested with the parasite, that patient, provided he doesn't have uh, very severe symptoms, can get oral treatment immediately. It has also shown us that it has really high efficacy in stage one, meaning in the, those patients who are not severe. And it's also uh, as efficacious in children, which is very important as well, because otherwise those small kids would require the lumbar puncture if they are in the advanced stage and would require the infusion, the combination of infusions and oral treatment. So overall, it is almost the same as the standard of care, but it's oral and doesn't need the lumbar puncture. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I'd love to hear more about the story of this drug's discovery. How was it selected as a potential candidate for a sleeping sickness medication? And then what happened after that? So that came from the, uh, well, the way we worked at the NDI, and it was uh, our predecessor, so El Sorelli and Bernadette Bourdin, who evaluated uh, drugs of the class, nitroimidazole uh, class, because they were known to have a potential for this disease, and looked at a library of, uh, I think, of almost 700 drugs and started looking at the potential for those drugs. Vexinidazole came out. It had been developed um, earlier on by predecessor of Sanofi and put on shelves before it came to clinical stage just for probably you know, um, strategic reasons, nothing else. So it was uh, identified back from the shelves. And then as the value chain of, of clinical development evolved, meaning looking at um, in vitro testing uh, on, on parasite labs, going to animals to test 
the efficacy of the drug in animals infected by the parasites, we selected at the end fexinidazole as a clinical candidate, at which point we also signed a contract agreement with Sanofi and then started engaging in the standard phase one healthy volunteer study, followed by the very large um, study in Africa that uh, was co-led by, by Wilfried and, uh, and Dr. Conde in, uh, in the DRC. The historical lack of funding for human African trypanosomiasis and all other neglected tropical diseases, it has meant that drugs are slow to be developed, and once available, there are many logistical challenges that prevent access by people who need them. So can you talk about how important it is to form industrial partnerships to connect drug development with setting up infrastructure for actually administering those drugs? Having a disease that has priority for public health that is uh, on the WHO list of diseases that need to have um, you know, solution is one way of attracting funders together with an organization that can bring elements to show it can deliver, which, which was something we did with uh, the development of ASAC, which in fact we had done also with Sanofi. On the other hand, Sanofi, as part of their global corporate responsibility activity or access to drug uh, engagement for a long time had been supporting the WHO uh, financially. Therefore, it was kind of a, a natural partner for us to go with Sanofi to engage into this partnership where we would be doing the development and looking for funds to do that, which we got from public funding as well as private funding them doing the manufacturing and distribution together with the, with the WHO via a donation uh, of fexinidazole uh, to countries via WHO. So it's a bit complex and, and I think for each disease it's different and it's clear that we have to continue to promote the need to fund research for, for neglected tropical diseases. But there is, you know, a kind of move to public health um, interest in doing that, although still not as much as we have seen for TB, malaria, and HIV. So I want to take a quick pause here, and then when we get back, I want to dive deeper into the story of fexinidazole, specifically with the clinical trials process. Welcome back, everyone. So I was wondering if you could talk about what went into the clinical trials to test the safety and efficacy of this drug, and what were some of the biggest challenges in conducting these trials? This is a, a good question. You know, to, to conduct a clinical trial, you need to go where patients are. And uh, those patients are living in remote areas. Uh, as you may know, our health facilities in remote areas are in very bad state. So the first challenge, we have many challenges. First, we need to improve those health facilities, patient wards, laboratory, sanitation, all those things, and even to put clean waters, 
and uh, electricity by generator and to provide internet connection because this is very important in clinical trial. We need to, to train people because uh, health worker work, working in those remote area was not very used to clinical trial. So we need to train them on uh, GCP, good clinical practice, on protocol, on how to manage the clinical trial, how to manage the adverse events, serious adverse events. So we need to train people on this. And we need to set up a good way to reach those sites because we have local team, we have national, international team. So we need to set up a very safe way to reach those remote areas by using safe uh, boats, safe cars, and, uh, and so on. Even to set up to all those accommodations because when people go there to work, they need after the working day to have an acceptable accommodation. So we need to set up all this. And again, working on those population, you know, most of them will not, will not be able to read or to be involved or to, to, you know, to go in the clinical trial, you need to give your, you need to sign an informed consent form. So how to, to, to make this uh, at that level for those people who could not read. So we set up uh, uh, image boxes to explain them clearly what is the clinical trial. So while they were giving the agreement, <clears throat> there was a war of what is it. So we need to follow all this and we set up all this. And again, you know, because we are in clinical trial, we need to provide food to those uh, patients, but we were giving food to all heart patients, not only for those who was involved in clinical trial. So we set up all this, and then after we start with a clinical trial and uh, with uh, many supervision, many follow-up. So we work with the national program and with GNDI and uh, all our partners with TPH, that was doing the monitoring. So when I joined and I was coming from the uh, very well equipped uh, uh, clinical research networks in Europe, the US, and I, I came to the NDI and here we were, you know, with a new chemical entity. We had the basic uh, standard package for phase one, very good. And then we had to start this phase two study where for the first time you start treating patients. Uh, very far away and with little access, I would say, to information of what was going to happen to patients at the site level. And as Wilfried said, we had to do it where patients are and with the only people who know how to treat those patients and who are also uh, physicians that work in very remote areas. So we had to do things that I had not thought before I would need to do, which is set up internet connections, come with uh, more, you know, bring some equipment that was not there, find ways of doing lab tests in a way that would not um, bring something artificial and then leaving that was not the art. So we had to think with many people and it was a collective effort of how can we bring the best science in the conditions where we were and in addition to everything uh, that Wilfried said, we had to think about this and bring what we thought were the best uh, sustainable solutions. We, we had to do electrocardiograms. So we took those devices that allow us to have a direct connection in France with what was happening in the middle of the DRC in one patient, et cetera. So it was quite a bit of a stretched uh, effort 
but I have to say with so much enthusiasm <laughs> from everyone, uh, everywhere, we were all so excited to make it happen. So I think we did something really nice that uh, could serve as a, as a model for, for future you know, research and that also brought a lot of um, experience to all of us. Something else we did aside of this was when we said, okay, we need to have this study as any study in the world approved by an ethics committee. Well, who's the best position to verify that you're not taking risks for patients, that you're responding to your scientific hypothesis, that what you're doing is well done, makes sense, you're not uh, exposing patients to a risk. And when I joined, the, the routine way was to have a double ethics committee, one in the north and one in the south. And I, I, it was exactly that. And we said, well, maybe we can do it differently. Maybe we can have committees from the South and one committee in the North discussing this together and finding ways of, you know, consolidating different experience from different areas of the world in a way that would help to have the best review. This is what we did. And we published. And it was a learning experience for, for all of us, from those uh, maybe from less experienced ethics committees uh, in, in DRC or elsewhere that were taking a huge responsibility in accepting, you know, for the study to be conducted in their patients. But also uh, from the, uh, the, the committee in the North who were, you know, faced with questions they had never thought about that, you know, made them think a bit differently, like, you know, funding issues, our colleagues from, from Africa were asking, are you sure that you will have the funding to continue? Or they were asking uh, questions about how we explained the study to, to patients or community issues, things like that, which they had not ever you know, really experienced. So a very rich experience. And then once everything was in place, the study was conducted as it would be anywhere else, except that we found, again, uh, something which when you have experience in clinical trials, you wouldn't think is, is real. We had a follow-up of patients enrolled in the study of 18 months. And, you know, it is not unusual that once patients are receiving a treatment that here was for 10 days, well, they come after, okay, they will come for the follow-up visit at three months, maybe at six months, a few will not come at 12 months. And why the heck would they come at 18 months if they're feeling well? Well, we had three, I think three patients lost to follow-up out of over 390 patients. This is outstanding, outstanding. And everybody has been so impressed by this. Why did this happen? Because there was such an effort locally, not every single patient that was diagnosed and entered in the study was followed. And I think, again, Wilfried can explain how this was done because it was not simple. Yes, you know, clinical trial on heart, we need to keep those patients because the last follow-up was 18 months after receiving the treatment. This was not easy, you know, because when they feel good, they don't come because uh, well, they, they are okay, they receive the treatment. The, the very important moment were uh, when we were doing the informed consent form so that they are aware that they need to come to all the follow-up visits because if 
you don't come, it's uh, it considered failure. But we had their uh, address, even the name of the leader of their village, the name of the head of uh, nurse of the village. So we have a motorbike to, to follow them, then, then cell phone number of uh, one of relative, if they have it, all this, we use all this to, to, to reach the great majority of uh, patients. And as we were all motivated, local team, they are at the national level and uh, at our HQ. So we, we, did, this, we did this uh, success story and, and we, we succeeded, but it was not easy, but we did it. Yeah, that's incredible. And I can imagine that, you know, this enormous effort at the national and the local and the international scales, it's probably led to a lot of lessons in terms of, you know, not just how to set up clinical trials and how to reach patients and keep in contact with them. Uh, but I wanted to ask, you know, what are the biggest lessons do you think we can take from this story of fexinidazole and how can we use them to help control efforts for other neglected tropical diseases or just general healthcare infrastructure? Yes, the, the great lesson to my side is, you know, this collaboration because uh, DNDI succeed to put together the national control program. And that was very important to have the national control program because they had to give the product profile they need, what was the exact need. That was the first. And uh, to have farmers, of course, and to have WHO and to have, you know, all those uh, stakeholders to put them together working on this project. That is a great, great lesson to my side. So it's something we can, uh, you know, reproduce, use it when to want to tackle uh, a health problem. You, you, you need to involve the health worker, the control program, the researcher, university, WHO, and all those stakeholders. And together, we are strong. So fixinidazole is currently approved to treat the Gambiense form of human African trypanosomiasis, which is by far the most common form of the disease. But can you talk about how far along we are in the research to determine whether this drug is also effective against trypanosoma brucei rhodesiense, the other form of human African trypanosomiasis? Yes, so we have good news because it took some time, but we managed to get uh, funding from EDCTP. And I, I think I should mention the other funders for the year. Uh, for the HAT program, uh, you know, the Gates Foundation, MSF, uh, the UK government, the French government. I just want to mention them because we wouldn't be here uh, without their support. But thanks to EDCTP, we were able to start and finish recruitment in a small study of pexinidazole and TB rhodesiense because based on the uh, same studies that uh, showed the potential for pexinidazole to work on TB gambiense, we had the same uh, information for TB rhodesiense. So we've just finished enrollment um, and uh, I, I hope that we'll be able to report on this uh, quite soon. But it's, it's fantastic because because the here the reference treatment is melarsoprol is still melarsoprol which is this arsenic based uh, treatment so if we can show that fexinidazole can be an alternative to a drug that is yes very efficacious but also extremely toxic that would be incredibly useful yes absolutely 
Are there other potential applications for fexinidazole, like, for instance, other parasitic diseases besides these trypanosomas? So we looked at visceral leishmaniasis, and uh, we conducted a small study in Sudan, which didn't show any efficacy. So here we stopped. And then we looked at Chagas, and the, the signal for Chagas is not quite clear. So I think we have to wait until we have final results, because that could also uh, be um, one area of interest. Other than that, um, we've not looked at anything concrete, but it's an antiparasitic disease. So, you know, it could have other potential, uh, potential use. So I just have one last question for you, and that is, what do you hope this next year brings in terms of human African trypanosomiasis research or control efforts? I think the great step we made is to ease the treatment. So we, we, we moved from melasopor to next, which is the, the, the kind of gold standard, but next, uh, with next, uh, we had many challenge, logistical challenges. But now what we have uh, with fexinidazole that can treat both stage and that is tablet is, you know, easy to send it anywhere, even in those remote area. And it's very easy to train people to use this. And uh, this is one of a very important contribution to, uh, to our work toward elimination. I think maybe Natalie can complete me. No, I think first we'd like to see Fexinidazole roll out and we'd like to see, uh, as I said, the, the results of Fexin Rhodesiense, that's one, and, and see that numbers you know, continue to, to go down, not as an artifact of, of patients not being treated. But I think what I'd like to see is still attention because we know that the, what people call the last mile or to elimination and sustained elimination uh, or elimination of transmission takes time. There's another compound in our pipeline, which is hugely promising as well, a single dose treatment. And I think it's just making sure that there is still interest. Job is not done. It's not finished. There are still patients who need treatment. We need to continue the efforts, including to have, you know, the commitments of, of countries to continue to be engaged in this, uh, in this fight. And in fact, this comes really nicely because, in three days, this will be the third NTD, uh, the second NTD day, but the third uh, human African trypanosomiasis day in, in DRC. So, you know, I think it's it's hugely important that we do not think that we have finished, but we are encouraged by our successes and the fact that in a way, you know, if 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 our success in, in HAT can be a kind of reference and, and enthusiastic uh, hope for others to continue to engage in, in that area of NTDs will all be really, we, we will have double one and, and fulfilled our, a bit of our mission. Thank you so much to Dr. Matombo Kolonji and Dr. Strobor-Gaft for such a fantastic interview. It is so incredible to hear what a game-changer all has been for human African trypanosomiasis, and also what this drug's development can teach us about the importance of collaborations among national control programs, healthcare companies, and global nonprofits for the elimination of other neglected tropical diseases. 
If you want to explore more about Fexinidazole or other projects that DNDI is involved in, check out their website, dndi.org. And I'll also post some links on the page for this episode on our website. Also on our website, you can find all kinds of good stuff, like the sources for all of our episodes, transcripts, Quarantini and Placebo Rita recipes, our bookshop.org affiliate account, links to music by Bloodmobile, links to merch, our Patreon, alcohol-free episodes, and so much more. A big thanks, as always, to Bloodmobile, who provides the music for this and all of our episodes. And thanks to you, listeners. I really hope you liked this deep dive into human African trypanosomiasis and fexinidazole. And a special thank you, as always, to our wonderful patrons. We love you and appreciate you. We've got a brand new regular season episode coming out next week, so mark your calendars. And until then, keep washing those hands.